We're working through Romans, the letter that changed the world. And tonight we're continuing on chapter 13. We went down to the end of verse 7. We'll pick it up on verse 8. Love and the fulfilling of the law. Love and the fulfilling of the law. It's a tricky thing for a lot of Christians to sort out what are we supposed to do with our Old Testaments. What, what role do they play in our lives today as Christians? Are we under the New Covenant? Has it replaced the Old? Um, is it a supplemental covenant? How do we work out law and grace? This is a, one of the key New Testament texts, not the only one. Love and the fulfilling of the law, Romans 13. Let's read 8 through 10, okay? Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He doesn't use the word keep the law. He uses the word fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, covet, and any other commandment, so he means to include all of them, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of of the law. These verses, 8, 9, and 10, they have a, a connection with the text that we studied last Sunday night on the Christian and government. That's what we looked at last Sunday night. Verse 7 repeats the subject of owing debts four times in terms of divinely instituted human government. We have to come to terms, he says, with owing taxes and revenue, all that in verse 7, and respect and honor. Those four things he mentions in verse 7. Those are debts that we have. Um, governments don't pay for themselves. Earthly systems require finance, so that's taxes and revenue. And to work at all, they require that people be somewhat governable and submissive. And so, in addition to taxes and revenue, he says next they, they need respect and they need honor. They need that if they're to work at all. And God, says Paul, God wants them to work. So the fundamental concept in those verses about the Christian and government is is the Christian and his or her duty to earthly authorities, earthly governments. Now, I might not like the form of government under which I live. I I could be a conservative living under a very liberal government. I could be a monarchist living under a democratic government or vice versa. And so there may or may not be agreement with my particular form of government, but I must, Paul says, pay my taxes. I must do all I can to honor those in leadership over me. Taxes will probably be the law. And also no one who follows Christ can be, can be unsubmissive, non-respectful, 
toward his or her government. But you can do all those things in relationship to government without love being required. I mean, I have to honor my leaders, true enough. But I honor them not because I necessarily love them, but because of the office they hold under God's providence. Paul says God sets up leaders, even if I don't like those leaders. So the office is worthy of respect, even if people who might hold that office, even if they aren't worthy of respect. The office still is. It's just a matter of my duty under God. And it's, and it's right at that point, so I've been looking at verse 7 now. It's right at that point where we kind of see today's text offering uh, not just continuity, but also contrast. Because once you pick up in verse 8, Paul presses the issue a lot deeper. As he moves from my duty to my government to, to my duty with relationships... He kind of stretches the borders of of how we're to treat each other. And he probably doesn't mean to limit these instructions to just how we treat Christians. He's talking about how we relate to our neighbor. He uses that word, neighbor. And you think of Jesus and his parable, the good Samaritan, who's the good neighbor. And so those instructions in verse 8, they're to exclude no one. No one. That's, that's the words that he uses. So point number one. The realm of love is, is always deeper and also more demanding than the realm of duty. I get that in that eighth verse of our, the opening verse of our text. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's an interesting phrase. The one who loves has fulfilled the law. Because we know from Paul's earlier words in Romans, we studied them, that no one actually fulfills the law perfectly in this life. If you were to look at 3.20 of Romans, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, that is God's, sight. What's the law for? Well, through the law comes the knowledge of of sin. So so we can't qualify in God's sight by law keeping. It, It won't work. We can't be justified on any kind of legal pathway because we never we 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 never keep the whole law perfectly. We can't. And so what does Paul mean when he says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What can that mean then? And I think he means that love is what sets the direction, the pathway of my life before God. Love is the thing, the attitude, the background in my life. Love is what God looks for. So so the one who loves is setting his or her life in the direction that law-keeping always intended but could never accomplish. Or maybe to put it in the negative. Love is what keeps us from breaking the law. 
If you act out of love, you will, from the inside out, tear up the roots of lawlessness, the occasions of lawlessness in your life. And here's why I think that's important. It, it forever shatters the myth believed by many sincere Christians that because we are redeemed by Christ, we can just forget about the law. We can ignore the law because, well, we've been saved. We've been indwelt by the Spirit, so fooey on the law. And, and nothing really could be more opposite to the truth. It's not that love ever ignores the law of God. I mean, there's still right and wrong before God. And we must all uh, strive for holiness, the book of Hebrews says. There are requirements to holiness, and God, God never changes for his children. And if anyone thinks the walk of love is less rigorous than the walk of law, he either doesn't understand the nature of love or the teaching of Jesus. John, true enough, John says that love takes the burden out of the law. That means that the burden of being justified by law our hearts have been set free from that kind of condemnation. So, so there's a sense in which God's commands cease, John says, to be a burden, but they don't cease to exist. They just get fulfilled in a richer, fuller, better way. I come under the yoke of Christ. It's more deep and it's more joyful. But it still fulfills the law. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Okay, verse 2. Sorry, point 2. These verses outline one of the key tests of the life of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. We all talk about being, being uh, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Paul says if, if the Spirit doesn't live in you, you're not, you're not one of God's. That's part of regeneration. The Spirit comes in. There's the life of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. How do you know if he's in there? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is working in your life? Look at verse 8 again. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So, so there are debts we are not to carry through life. And then there's a debt we are all to carry through life. The debt we all have and must feel is the debt to love others. Don't owe anyone anything except, except to love. So that, that's a debt. You should feel that you owe that. Not anything else but that. So the debt of love is somehow to to drive the rest of my actions. I'm to be as compelled by it. Think about debts. Think about uh, your mortgage. Think about a credit card obligation. Think about some kind of demand loan. He says you're, you're to carry the love of Christ around in your heart in, in a sense of owing it like that. So this debt of love isn't to be treated as something optional. That's why he links it up with this idea of debt very intentionally. 
It isn't something that we can just pay off whenever we get around to it. That's why he links it up with the verse before. When he talks about love in verse 8, he, he ties it in with paying taxes in verse 7. It's just something, something we, we, we must do. It's not the first time that Paul talked about the, the uh, driving power of debt, this particular debt of love. It's not the first time he talked about it. It seemed to be something he carried around a lot. His, his first mention of it in the book of Romans is in chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, I am under obligation. See that? Obligation. So he's not just talking here about an emotion or a feeling. It, it's this idea of debt again. I'm under an obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, A lot of translations actually use that word debtor. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians. It's it's the same word Paul uses in chapter 13 when he speaks about the debt we owe to each other, the debt of love. Here's, I think, what Paul means. And here's how he was carrying this debt of love that he talks about in 13, 8, and that he talked about in 1, 14. Here's, here's what I think Paul means. He means he had been the recipient of, of marvelous grace. And, and you could tell that he thought about it a lot. Even when he talked to other people about transforming their lives, remember in Romans 12, he'd say, I, 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 urge, you, I urge you by the mercies of God. Be transformed, renewing of your mind. But, but it starts with this, this comprehension of debt. Paul was a rebel. He called himself a blasphemer. He called himself the chiefest of sinners. He deserved nothing but God's wrath and God's judgment. But that's not what he got from God. Unbelievably. He received mercy and he received forgiveness. He received a calling. He received marvelous love. And, and here's the point. That grace didn't just give Paul forgiveness. That grace gave Paul his mission. And it's supposed to give you your mission. This is God's will for your life. You want to know God's will for your life? I can give it to you tonight. I can give you God's will for your life. Paul knew that just as he so desperately needed God's grace in the gospel, everyone else needed it too. And that put Paul in debt. He owed everyone the same transforming, freeing, renewing grace of God that he had received. He knew the truth and the source of that grace. Other people didn't. There, that's my debt, Paul says. I carry that around everywhere I go. It's the debt of love. We're more comfortable, aren't we, talking about the call of God to serve him? We're more comfortable with that than talking about the debt of the gospel on all of our lives. Paul thought to receive grace was to be placed under obligation. To receive that kind of love puts you in the debt of love. Point number three. To keep the commands of the law without Christ's love, 
is useful in maintaining order in society, but it's useless in terms of pleasing God. Useful and useless. It's useful in terms of maintaining order, helping others, but it's useless in terms of pleasing God. Look at our text again, Romans 13, 8 and 9. Owe no one anything except to love each other. That's what you owe. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. They're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, there is no command to love yourself. The command is to love others as we all naturally already love ourselves. There's only one command, to love others as you love yourself. Perhaps those verses cut to the heart of of a lot of confusion in the body of Christ. I asked it this morning when I was announcing tonight. How important is keeping the law? If you could keep the law, does that will that get you to heaven? It seems pretty important as much as it lies within us to keep it. I mean, the law forbids murder and theft, adultery, uh, covetousness, bribery. So the the law, it, it seems to place these necessary safeguards around our rights as human beings, both Christian and non-Christian. So there's, I think there's great value in keeping the law. Where would we be if there were no prohibitions against stealing and murdering and committing adultery? What kind of world would it be? The problem is, for all of the good things the law can do, it can't make us right with God. We know that because Paul has already said so in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's clear as a bell. Nobody will be saved through the law. And even if you could keep the law, or at least most of it, and we do, I had never committed adultery, I've never stolen, I've never murdered. Uh, there's all sorts of commandments that I've kept perfectly. That doesn't make me right with God. Lots of people haven't done those things. I still wouldn't be made right with God because keeping the law only reaches the outside of my actions, the outside of my life. It might clean up the outside of the cup, to use Jesus' words, but it never gets to the inside. I think this is often missed when we consider righteousness of life. Consider 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses. They're really striking. It's too bad we know them so well. We read them at every wedding. They have nothing to do with weddings. Paul never had a wedding on his mind when he wrote Romans 13. He was thinking of life in the church and the exercising of spiritual gifts. 13, 1 to 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so there's the gift of tongues, but have not love, my praying and prophesying and speaking in tongues, it's just noise. Noisy gong, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, here's a prophet, I understand all, circle all, all mysteries and all knowledge. Like when you think of all the things we don't know, 
take of all the potential things that could be known, what percentage do you think you know? It would be a tiny, tiny, tiny point zero 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 one percent of everything that's knowable in the universe. But here's a person, I had all knowledge. More than Google. Absolutely everything. Or, or I have all faith. You want to talk? Wouldn't people flock to meetings like this where someone could speak to, let alone mountains, but could speak to anything and just have it moved and removed and you could see it all happening? Power like that. Everybody would be there. Every Christian in the country would flock. All faith so that I can remove mountains, but I don't have love. Nothing. I give away all that I have. I'm a martyr. I give up my body to be burned, but have not love. And then he says, I gain, I gain nothing. Just ponder those last three words. I gain nothing. There's no gain in it. What does he mean? Well, does he mean that no one else would be helped by my philanthropy? No, he doesn't mean that. A lot of people could be helped. Could people not be fed and clothed or educated? Could I not write helpful books if I had all knowledge? What if I understood all mysteries? I could stand up and share with the world the the cause and the cure of all cancer. And And then at the end of all that, he says, I gain nothing. He means he himself in terms of his relationship with God, would gain nothing. His, his deeds, while they would do all sorts of good in this world, they would not pile up any kind of merit before God. Others would gain, to be sure, but Paul himself, in his heart, would be unchanged, unhelped in his relationship with God. And, and so we start to see God only looks at deeds from their source rather than in their effect. And without love, I would give away all my goods and start looking for a tax benefit. I would perhaps use my universal knowledge to cure cancer, but I could also use it to rule the world. And if I truly had all the power to do all these things, but it existed in my fallen heart, I should be feared, not admired. That's not the kind of person you want in power. But on the other hand, if I have the love of Christ in a transformed heart, then I can be trusted to do all the good I can possibly do and none of the evil. That's the difference. So it's not that Christians don't think about keeping the law. We know this to be so because... Paul is writing to Christians as he quotes the law in 13.9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's writing to Christians about the law. So it's not that those are unimportant. But they have to be kept from the inside out. If I love you, I won't rob you even if I had the opportunity. But unlike the keeping of the bare law not to rob you, I also won't harbor envy or anger against you. So if the law says I mustn't rob you, I won't. 
But in the power of love, it's not just that I don't rob you. I will look out for your needs and treat you as lavishly as I would treat myself. So that's the kind of thinking Jesus was trying to inject into these law-bound minds of the religious leaders and Pharisees. Point number four. The debt of love is the only debt that grows as you pay it back. 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is is the fulfilling of the law. I mean, once you've paid your taxes, they're paid. Once you pay off your mortgage, you don't have to pay it anymore. You pay off a credit card and you can just cut it in two if you want. That's the nature of all other debts. But whoever pays the debt of love, you never really finish. I mean, I mean, as many discover in the marriage relationship, the more you do loving things for your spouse, what happens? Well, the more you love your spouse and the more you want to do for your spouse. The more you're drawn into doing more and more things to reveal your love because your love grows. Love always expands as it is expressed. And suddenly, the mystery starts to dissolve. We start to see why the greatest command isn't to obey God, which perhaps you could train a robot to do. The greatest command is to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and Jesus adds mind and strength. So the next time you read those oft-repeated words in the New Testament, love is the fulfilling of the law, get a picture of a cup of water, a cup put under a gushing tap, and it's just held there, never taken away. And so the water just fills the cup, fulfills fills the cup, it spills over the side. I mean, the cup gets filled, to be sure. The law will be kept in the loving heart, but that's not all. It's the overflow. The love grows. And it's the overflow that brings the life joy and gladness and delight in holiness. So you don't just pursue righteousness. You prefer righteousness. That's the miracle of love as it gets expressed in our lives. Here's what happens. Without this understanding, people who, who go by this church and who talk to people at CDV Church, if we don't understand this, they're going to come and they're going to see, what do, you got, what, do you, what, uh, what do you guys do there at CDV? I see all these cars. Looks like you got a lot of people there. Big building. So what's it all about? And you say, well, let me tell you. It's, it's um, uh, like we have our religion. Um, we, have, we have to go to church quite a bit. Uh, you, you can't watch any dirty stuff on TV. And you, you don't waste time on, on the Internet. And we're, we're uh, not allowed to gamble and um, stay sexually pure, especially before marriage. And, yeah, that, that's, that's what we do. And they're going to go, gee, wow, sounds like a ball. Enjoy. 
But if they encounter people who say, I've discovered something so wonderful that all the things I treasured before this are just empty and a waste of time. And I found something that gives joy and delight. And, and it's, like, it's, it's like the love you have for your dearest spouse, only it's richer and bigger and fuller. And it, and it fills your heart with the deepest satisfaction. And I just can't do enough things for my Lord. Well, now you got something that someone's going to say, I, I need that. I need that kind of life. I'm empty. I'm sick of the bad things that I do, and I can't stop doing them. This looks transforming to me. That's what this understanding does. It changes everything. Let's pray.